Welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. We bring you news and views on the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin's electric industry from policymakers, executives, and customer and environmental advocates. Bringing you these discussions, we are the Customers First Coalition. Here's your host, Executive Director Kristen Jilks. Welcome back to the Electric Wire podcast. I am Kristen Jilks. Our panel today breaks down some of the major energy provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, which is federal legislation signed into law by President Joe Biden on August 16th, 2022, which included sweeping changes to existing renewable energy production and investment tax credits, game-changing incentives for electric vehicles and electrification, and a host of rebates and other programs to spur home and building efficiency upgrades. Thank you again to our panel for joining. And with that, I'll turn you over to our discussion. Well, a very special welcome to our guests on this episode about the Inflation Reduction Act. I am joined today by Kathy Kuntz, who is the Director of the Dane County Office on Energy and Climate Change. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's a delight to be here today to talk about the IRA. Thank you for joining. And this is your second time on the podcast. Kathy joined, I want to say it was 2020. We were talking about buildings and smart buildings, energy efficient buildings. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, you know, my background is energy efficiency. I've been with the county for about three years now, leading their climate and energy efforts. So it's it's great to be back with you. Well, thank you again for joining, Kathy. And next we have Andrew Hansen, who is a partner at the Perkins Cooley LLP law firm based here in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Kristen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What makes you interested in the IRA and um, why have you been diving into this at your firm? Well, apart from a personal interest in renewable energy and the energy transformation that's happening across the country right now, a large part of my practice focuses on uh, helping clients, energy clients, developers, utilities uh, develop and get permits for large-scale renewable energy projects. And so the IRA, that is the central focus of that law, is to promote and incentivize renewable energy deployments uh, across the country. So we pay very close attention to um, uh, to the details of this law and the IRS guidance that's been coming out of it. Thanks, Andrew. Well, we're looking forward to tapping into some of that knowledge today. And lastly, we have Anne Blair. Anne is the Senior Director of Policy at the Electrification Coalition. Anne, thank you for joining. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Electrification Coalition and your interest in the IRA? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. Um, the Electrification Coalition is a national nonpartisan uh, not-for-profit organization, and we work to support the mass adoption of transportation electrification from a national security perspective. Um, there are significant impacts from our dependence on oil and the risks to all Americans uh, from that dependence, from the, you know, the amount of um, money that we're, we're sending overseas for the protection of those assets and the impacts to our military and others. And that really has deep embedded impacts in our overall national security. Uh, me personally, I've been working on uh, transportation issues for a little over 20 years now and really driven um, at on, on these issues from uh, the impacts I've seen from our dependence on oil uh, from an environmental standpoint, uh, from impacts from uh, oil spills and things like that, and also from emissions perspective. Um, the first work that I started doing was on reducing emissions from school buses because of the impacts on our children's health. And so the IRA really has important impl implications for helping really elevate um, and clean up uh, those resources, both light from light, medium, and heavy duty vehicles. So really excited about this law and to talk about it with you all today. Thank you so much, Anne. I know when I think of school buses, there is a distinctive smell that I associate with them from my childhood. And I think of 
an electric school bus with no direct tailpipe emissions, I think that everyone can get behind a healthier environment for our kids. Yeah, it, it, it's going to have you know, huge impacts. And, you know, this law really is an important complement to the bipartisan infrastructure law, which has additional funding to support school bus electrification. And really the combination of those, I think, will really get us to a good place and making it a cleaner environment for kids on riding those buses. I recently chaperoned one of my son's trips, um, uh, field trips on the school bus, so, you know, one of the diesel ones. And it had been a long time. And I was like, yes, this is why. I'm still doing this work because it, <laughs> it is not a pleasant environment. Thank you for doing that work, Anne. All right. Well, Andrew, I want to start with you. You mentioned working on siding renewable energy projects. Tell us a little bit more about what you have found in the IRA for renewable energy. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think I want to start, though, uh, what the world looked like before the Inflation Reduction Act was passed for the renewable energy sector in the US. And I always joke that the agency or arm of the federal government that is the most responsible for setting renewable energy policy in the United States is, believe it or not, perhaps not the Department of Energy, but instead the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, because a large part of the favorable economics of renewable energy in the last 15, 20 years has been driven by tax credits enacted by Congress and implemented by the IRS through, uh, through guidance. And that tax credit regime went a little bit something like this. There were two main types of tax credits. One is a production tax credit, which gives you a tax credit based on how much renewable energy your facility produces on an annual basis. And then there's this other thing called an investment tax credit that is also kind of how it sounds. Uh, it is a tax credit based on the amount that you invested to construct that renewable energy project. Um, and there, it's a slightly different regime uh, between the two credits um, and slightly different technologies that are eligible for the two credits. Um, just by way of example, a wind project can elect either the production tax credits, so they get um, a cents per kilowatt hour tax credit for each kilowatt hour that the turbine generates, the wind turbine generates, or they can elect the investment tax credit, meaning they just get to reduce the upfront capital cost of their project by uh, roughly 30%. I'm simplifying here. And that 30% tax credit would vest over a period of five years. And that's how you would kind of fund or finance the uh, deployment of a large scale Wind project. With the production tax credits, you earn those uh, every year for every kilowatt hour you produce during the year for a period of 10 years. So it's slightly longer. And it's generally regarded uh, that the production tax credits, at least in the wind example, are a little more valuable and produce more offsetting credits to reduce the cost of your project than, say, the investment tax credit. Now, the way you would qualify for these credits would be you could either begin physical construction of the project, uh, meaning you're you know, pouring foundations and you're out there with backhoes and bulldozers and the works, you get the idea. And that's on-site physical work, or you could do it with off-site physical work, meaning you could order a big component um, that is gonna be used in your project. It's usually referred to as like the transformer. People use the transformer to show that they've started construction and that uh, and that they have qualified for these tax credits. The last way to do it is by incurring 5% or more of the cost of the project uh, by a date certain. And that's called the safe harbor. And you can show that your project qualifies for either the production tax credits or the investment tax credits by employing the safe harbor. And the reason the safe harbor was important in these you know, definitions of construction were important it's because under the old regime, uh, you had to start construction by a date certain in order to qualify for the highest level of the tax credits. The longer you waited from one year to the next, the tax credits would begin to phase down. And that was just Congress trying to say, let's get on the ball. Let's incentivize early adoption of renewable energy. The sooner you put your product, you start construction on your project, the more tax credit you're, you're going to get. And then after that, you just had to complete construction within four years. Uh, and show that you are employing continuous efforts to finish construction project. Just bear in mind, um, you know, you you had this like regime in which you really had to hurry up 
and get your project in service. For example, if you wanted to qualify your wind project for 100% production tax credits, the full value of the production tax credits, for example, you'd have to start construction before 2016. Uh, and then each year thereafter, the it would phase down by 20%. And, you know, the IRS, because of the global pandemic, extended that. Sometimes Congress would step in and extend the phase downs so that we they would breathe a little new life into these renewable energy projects or into these tax credits to make them last a little bit longer. Well, along comes the Inflation Reduction Act. And what the IRA fundamentally did is create long-term certainty. It eliminated these fits and starts that we were going through between 2010 and 2020, essentially, where all the uh, developers in the industry would scramble to, to get wind turbine blades or panels, solar panels or the like in order to meet these kind of deadlines. The IRA kind of, for the most part, got rid of all that, at least pushed it way out. The phase downs are like way out into the 2030s now, meaning all you need to do is start construction to qualify these projects and you're kind of in the door. Now, the interesting thing is there's a couple of hooks. You know, yes, you've got the next 10 years to decide you want to when you want to start your renewable energy project and you get to qualify for the full level of the tax credits. There's no more phase downs, at least not in the near term. But there's a couple of hooks. One is you really you just get this base credit amount and then you have to do something, a couple of other things in order to get the full credit amount. And those couple of other things are primarily complying with the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements that are set forth in the law. And if you can demonstrate that you used, you know, I'll use shorthand here, union labor that paid prevailing wages, and you uh, employed the required number of apprentices in constructing your renew renewable energy project, then you can get the full credit. Now, before, you just got the full credit if you showed that you had started construction and finished construction for four years. Now there's a few other hooks. You need to make sure that you are employing prevailing wage and apprentices. And that is important uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it satisfies one of the goals of the law, which is to build up the renewable energy labor force in the United States um, and to make sure that those folks are being paid fair wages. From a developer perspective, it tends to or can tend to slightly increase the cost of your project because now there are requirements, federal requirements to ensure that you're paying uh, uh, you, essentially prevailing wages. And it means that there's gonna be some uncertainty with whether or not your project really qualified until you've finished construction, meaning you've met those prevailing wage and labor requirements. Beginning on January 29th, projects that start construction after that date will have to comply with the prevailing wage and labor requirements. In a nutshell, that is how uh, one of the biggest ways in which the Inflation Reduction Act has changed. I think that's really helpful. I I mean, I think just as a casual observer, I had heard there were things in the IRA that addressed renewable energy tax credits, but that really helps clarify. Did the did the levels change at all? Did the percentages change? Uh, no, not to speak of, except that you can now qualify for the full level of the production tax credits and the full level of the investment tax credits. There's no phase downs, at least not for several years from now. And so, and, and you know, the production tax credits can offset as much as 40 to 60% of the cost of a renewable energy project. The investment tax credit, you know, the one that you just get based on the amount of money you put into your project, can offset the cost by as much as 30%. And what's really interesting to me about the difference between these two types of tax credits is that the investment tax credit was intended to be for technologies that didn't produce a lot of energy and were really expensive to build. And that's why solar was, I said that wind qualified for either the production tax credit or the investment tax credit. Before the IRA, it was only solar uh, that qualified for the investment tax credit. It could not, solar couldn't qualify for the production tax credits. And that's important because solar was not seen as something that produced a lot of energy, a lot of kilowatt hours. But things have changed since Congress enacted the last round of tax credits. The technology is, has advanced such that solar is a significant energy resource, not just a capacity resource, meaning it can generate those kilowatt hours 
not exactly on par with wind, but that's growing. And solar is getting better and better and better at producing a lot of energy. And so Congress and the Inflation Reduction Act made the decision, say, you know what? Solar should qualify for these production tax credits too, um, because that could be more valuable for a solar project than say the investment tax credit. So they're kind of letting the industry pick between these different types. Andrew, are there other energy generation sources that are now eligible for PTCs and ITCs under the Inflation Reduction Act? Yes. Um, one of the most significant, I think, uh, that wasn't previously eligible on a standalone basis is energy storage. Energy storage or thermal energy storage, like batteries, basically. Before the IRA, you had to show that your battery was co-located with your solar project and, and that at least 75% of the energy input into the battery came from a renewable energy resource. That was a condition of qualifying for the investment tax credit. Congress undid that and said that battery technology has evolved to the point now where whether it's co-located with renewables or otherwise, it is a valuable enough resource on the grid that it should be incentivized with an investment tax credit on a standalone basis rather than having to be paired with wind or solar. And that is game-changing, I think, for the energy storage industry as far as I've been able to see in my practice. That has opened the door for lots of new different energy storage technologies to enter the market including like long duration energy storage technologies that can discharge for up to 12 hours rather than the typical four hours. That will change things a lot, I think. What was in the IRA for nuclear power? Was it an ITC or PTC incentive? Well, it's it's like a PTC. And that I think is in 45U of the code. And it's really for just existing nuclear plants. It's like, I gotta be honest, it's a really complicated formula for how okay. the tax credit applies. Yeah. But nuclear facilities got a little something in the IRA too. Um, they're gonna receive tax credits just for generating. But the idea is, is that I think the, the US, I mean, it takes like 20 years to get a nuclear power plant built in the US, 10 to 20 for being kind of generous. And I think what the concern was is that we are maintaining this source of very low carbon or zero carbon generation and not let those nu nuclear plants just kind of retire automatically. Anybody who's been following the industry has kind of seen that wind has been out competing nuclear uh, in the market in recent years. And I think Congress was making deliberate choice not to pick winners and losers here but um, to help nuclear as much as wind is being helped because it's the tax credits for wind that has been kind of pummeling nuclear uh, in the market the last couple of years. I've heard that as well. Thank you, Andrew. Let's switch gears a little bit now. And Anne, I want to turn to you and ask you a little bit more about electrification and how the IRA is potentially a game changer for electrification in this country. Yeah, thanks so much, Kristen. Um, well, we've really focused um, primarily on the electric vehicle provisions uh, that are in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And we really think this uh, this bill really is the first time that the United States has taken a comprehensive approach to addressing uh, both the opportunity to bring a cleaner transportation source um, and address our energy security challenges. And it, it's done it in a couple of ways. So the IRA has created uh, several new tax credits and also extended additional one. But there, of course, are some changes. And there's four, four different pieces I particularly want to, to draw uh, your attention to. Um, so there's the light, basically the light duty uh, vehicle tax credit, um, also known as the clean vehicle credit. Um, and that that's a credit up to $7,500 uh, for an individual. And then there's a used EV tax credit, a commercial EV tax credit, and then the alternative fuel vehicle refueling tax credit, or um, that's another term uh, would be the EV charging equipment tax credit. And so 
Um, there are some new provisions that uh, were, were put in place on those tax credits. Uh, for example, there's new uh, MSRP caps, uh, new income caps, if you're, um, uh, you know, who's eligible to take those. There's new ways of distributing them. So the tax credit can be used as a rebate now. Um, and there's a few reasons that they have made these changes. They wanted to open up the market to, to more individuals basically uh, to allow for, uh, to go beyond the first adopters, if you will, to the next kind of tier of individuals to adopt it. And, and you get more uh, middle and lower income people into this, what we know to be, you know, amazing new technology that will save consumers money. And also is just really fun to drive too. <laughs> um, and then a, a few of the additional provisions, as I mentioned, the energy security issues is they put some um, uh, requirements around where the vehicles must be assembled. And so beginning as soon as the bill was signed um, back last year in, in November, um, uh, the vehicles must be assembled in North America. Um, and then there's additional provisions that um, uh, begin to take place at the that begun to take place at the beginning of the year for uh, where and how the battery materials or the critical minerals used in electric vehicles, where those are sourced. And those provisions will begin to phase in at different periods, uh, different percentages over the course of the next decade. And another huge impact, similar to what Andrew mentioned um, about the, um, the production and investment tax credits, is this creates a longer-term solution than we've had before with electric vehicle tax credits. This will go uh, for 10 years, which also helps create more certainty in the market uh, for both consumers and for manufacturers. Uh, one of the things that the new credit um, changes as well as previously there was a, um, a limit or a cap on the number of vehicles that a manufacturer could sell and receive that credit. So that is no longer. And instead, they've added these other provisions um, to uh, to address some of the other the other issues. So um, those are a few of the you know key new provisions um, and happy to go a little bit deeper in those as well. Thanks, Anne. One of the questions I want to give you an opportunity to clear up is, do you think customers will like driving electric vehicles? Do you think they will like electrification in homes? Will this mm -hmm. be a better experience for customers? Or is it the government trying to push something that people don't actually want? Yeah, a uh, great question. Uh, you know, on the vehicle side, which which I know the most about, um, is uh, that people once they drive an electric vehicle, they tend to love it, um, and and will get another one. So you know, and myself included, I had you know a Chevrolet Volt, I've had a Nissan Leaf, and and now I have a Volkswagen ID. Four. The cars just really are a much better technology, saving money. Um, you know, uh, they are much more affordable and stable prices. Electricity prices across the country are far more stable than you know the oil and gas prices. So they create that additional incentive um, and the maintenance costs are so much lower. Um, you know, you're, ch you're changing your tires, you're changing your windshield wiper fluid. Um, but other than that, you know, the, 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 the technology is far superior than the internal combustion or diesel engine. Thank you, Anne. And I think Kathy and Andrew and I could probably all back you up on that one, that it is a great driving experience. Yes. And I'm excited for more people to experience it as well. And do you think that this legislation will spur more drivers on the road who are driving EVs? Yeah, I think it, it is going to be a real game changer, both in terms of awareness and getting more consumers and vehicles um, because of the tax credits and the incentive and the way it's going to be implemented, allowing more rebates for consumers. But, you know, the other thing that it's, you know, helping to do is there's going to be more vehicle models. You know, all the major um, engine manufacturers have a commitment to go partial or all electric within the next decade. So we're going to see a whole host of new models coming out. And this law will help 
expedite that timing. Um, as far as infrastructure, um, this law paired, as I mentioned earlier, with a bipartisan infrastructure law, which is focused on deploying a nationwide network of charging infrastructure across the country. These are really perfect complements, whereas that bill is really focused on the charging infrastructure, supporting utilities and grid and the transmission. And this law is really focused on the vehicle side and paired together. Um, it, it'll be a perfect complement to create that that certainty. I mean, one of the biggest questions you know, folks have about driving electric is, where do I charge it? How do I charge it? Is there enough charging? And, um, you know, what what we're going to see through this nationwide network is there going to be an addition, there's going to be charging stations, fast charging stations, at least every 50 miles, there's going to be redundancy at each station, so that you can be assured that you're going to have a station that works when you get there. And so um, it's really the complement of these laws that that's going to um, create more consumer confidence and expedite um, adoption of the vehicles. Okay, Kathy, you can weigh in on this as well, but I want to clear it up here as well. Is there anything in the IRA that is going to ban people from having natural gas stovetops? There is nothing in the IRA, Kristen, to, to ban natural gas stovetops. You know, it's kind of, it's maybe a little bit unfortunate that the news about the public health risks tied to gas stoves coincided with some of us talking about the IRA because things get conflated. I think, you know, there is a really important message, though, there about gas stoves. And as you know, we're we're electric vehicle drivers. When I talk to other electrical vehicle drivers, very often people say, I love my EV because it's clean. I go clean. What do you mean? And they say, I don't have this odor. And, you know, it, I really believe that within, especially with the IRA now, within the next decade, it's going to be increasingly uncommon for us to burn fossil fuels inside our, our well-constructed tight homes as a strategy for doing anything. And, and, you know, that's going to take some adjusting, but that's about my grandparents had a coal stove in the basement of their farmhouse when I say that to people, they're just like, that's crazy. Why would you burn coal inside the place where you live? And I'm like, and why do we burn natural gas inside the place where we live? These are, this is, this is not the future. It's, it's, you know, it, each of these transitions were better than the one that came before, but we're not talking about banning things, but I think it's really at the same time, very important that in the same way we say to people, you should never warm up your gas car in the garage because that carbon monoxide can leak back into what's often your kitchen adjacent to that garage. Similarly, there are real risks with cooking with natural gas in an unvented kitchen, and you should make sure you have a real vent that vents to the outside, and you should run your vent whenever your family is spending time in the kitchen near that stove. And in five years, this will be akin to secondhand smoke is my prediction that, that we're going to, you know, the, the health implications are serious. But the, the government did not outlaw cigarette smoking. They, they helped us understand the risks and people decide, you know, restricted maybe where things happened, but people are allowed to do these things. So yeah, it feels like a little bit of a boondoggle. Thank you for helping clear that up, Kathy. And let's stick with this topic of the home. Um, I know the Inflation Reduction Act had incentives and rebates for homeowners to help bring down costs, make energy more affordable, increase energy efficiency. Can you talk a little bit more about what is in the IRA for homeowners, for multi-unit dwellings, and how it's going to change the way that we live? Yeah, definitely, because there are there are um, several really substantial features here. And you know, the whole strategy of the IRA is to make clean energy solutions cheaper than dirty energy solutions. And so that resonates through what's available for homeowners. So first, today, beginning on January 1st, 2023, we have new tax credits for homeowners. And those tax credits are significant because the old tax credit 
was a once in a lifetime tax credit. So you could once do energy efficiency. Now the cap is an annual cap of $1,200. So you can think about how as a homeowner, you might one year do an energy audit where you can get $150 back on that. Maybe you do some insulation work. Maybe the next year you do an upgrade of some of your equipment. If you um, transition to a heat pump, there's a separate $2,000 tax credit for that. So the first layer is the tax credits that are now, and again, as Andrew was saying, those are 10-year tax credits. So it's not going to flip on us overnight. You know, there's time for the market to help leverage those. In addition to that, the IRA creates two new programs for, for um, households, and these are for homeowners as well as landlords. Um, and one is around energy efficiency, and one is around household electrification. And both programs will have higher incentives for low and moderate income households. Those programs aren't available yet, you know, that's, that's not, it's sort of, it's easier for a tax credit to go into effect than for a program to be designed. So the Department of Energy is still designing those programs. We believe that at some point this summer, they're going to communicate to states the parameters, and then each state will, will figure out within those parameters what they want to do and submit their plan to DOE. And the Best guess right now is it's probably 2024 when those programs roll out. But those programs included there, like one of the things that I think is very significant is under the electrification program, a homeowner is going to be eligible for a grant to pay for electrical panel upgrades. Now we know that for older homes, you know, they're they're there are barriers to moving to some of these technologies because you don't have enough electrical service. And historically, uh, an energy efficiency program here in Wisconsin, a program like Focus on Energy cannot pay for an electrical panel upgrade because there's no energy savings there. But there'll be these federal grants that can kind of fill some of that in. And all of that becomes really important from an equity perspective because we are moving across our buildings, and as you heard from Anne, across our transportation to more clean fuel solutions. We need these federal programs to ensure that our low and moderate income households are also making that transition, because otherwise we're gonna end up in the scenario where we've got our affluent communities, all electric, not using the natural gas system anymore, and, and pockets of, of disadvantaged communities who suddenly have to pay for that infrastructure 100% and their costs are going to spiral. And, you know, so we've, we've, we've got to make sure we're, we're bringing everyone along in this process together. Um, and of course, doing all that work, you know, increases comfort, it increases indoor air quality, there's, there's a ton of additional benefits, but fundamentally, it's going to reduce energy costs over the long term for all of those households. That's very exciting, I think, especially as it relates to overall affordability. You know, we're looking at high gas prices globally right now, and I think the more we are able to reduce our dependence on these fossil fuels that have sometimes unpredictable prices, I think the better it is for customers long-term. Yeah, you know, Anne, Anne referenced this um, talking about buying gasoline versus putting ele electricity into your car and how electricity is a more stable price over time. Certainly there are increases, but because those are regulated markets, largely it goes up more slowly. There in the course of the IRA, there was discussion of um, Moody's did this analysis of what drives inflation in the U.S. And before every significant inflationary period since World War II, there was a spike in fuel prices. If we can move our nation away from this dependence on this global market that we cannot affect the global price of a barrel of oil, we have the potential to sort of opt out of all of 
at least some of the inflation that's associated with that. That was just really powerful, like factoid to me that I was like, holy cow, who knew that like, yeah, this is, and it makes sense. Transportation, I mean, you know, it's a big piece of what is in all of our products. Yes. And I think it brings it all home. Like, why is this legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act? And, you know, all the provisions contained within and what they aim to do. So thank you for that, Kathy. Another another piece of this that I wanted to ask you about is the the local units of government. You know, you represent Dane County. I'm wondering if you're anticipating that local governments will see benefits from the IRA. So, so yeah, it's a great question. And my view is we're going to see huge benefits and we're going to see benefits in our own operations. So, so Andrew talked about the um, investment tax credit as, so one of the cool things in the IRA is that non-taxable entities like local governments, schools, nonprofits can, the, they created a thing they're calling direct pay, where essentially, even though we don't pay taxes, we'll, when we put solar or geothermal or a battery storage project together, we will be able to say to the treasury, you know, we spent a million dollars, please send our check for $300,000 to this address. And that that is just a huge game changer there in terms, certainly our own operations, but you know, we're, Dane County has countywide climate goals. We want to see emissions go down for everyone. And the IRA creates all these new tools that all of our partners can use that we are super excited about. Just this week, we launched new pages on our website about how individuals and businesses can access these tax credits, because we think there, there just is so much opportunity here in so many ways to accelerate what's happening. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for listeners. I'm excited to check that out as well, because I think one of the questions that I have and a lot of people have is, how is this going to affect me personally? So I want to ask all of you that, what provisions in the IRA do you feel that will affect you personally? Anne, I'll start with you. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on this? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll I'll jump into that. Um, I do want to go back to one of the comments that Kathy was saying in in res, you know response to what are some of the opportunities for you know local communities. So in a, in addition to some of the things that Kathy mentioned, there's um, a whole host of other grant opportunities that were also in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, related to pollution reduction programs in local communities. Um, there's the greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, program. There's port decarbonization grants and others like clean energy jobs uh, provisions that really will help local communities as well. So I just wanted to add that in there. In terms of, you know, benefits to me, I mean, really everything that Andrew, Kathy, and myself have all talked about, you know, things that we can do to our homes, um, you know, from, you know, solar panels to, you know, tightening up and making our homes more energy efficient, all of these things some of the things I've done, I haven't done all of them. And so, you know, I certainly want to look at, you know, those opportunities. Um, and then also, you know, I hope that I'm able to take advantage of the used EV tax credit, you know, to get a, a car for my son in a few years. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that he will only ever drive electric. <laughs> um, so I think there are um, yeah, a number of the provisions that I'll be able to, to, to take advantage of, of personally. And, you know, I think, I think we can all see ourselves in some piece of the IRA. Um, so that's, what's really exciting about it. it. You know, regardless of your, your income level, um, you know, in, in our communities, there's a piece for everyone in this law. That's the exciting part. All right, Andrew, what do you think? Uh, well, that's a, that's tough. I mean, I kind of want to echo what Anne said is that there's, you know, this is a green energy law that seems to have a little something for everyone. Uh, you know, the, the law is kind of divided up into what I would call like three buckets. One is like the general business credits. So if you are a business that wants to go green, 
Um, there's a whole slate of renewable energy credits for that. Um, those are largely the credits that I kind of swim around in and work with our energy clients on. And then there's the personal credits, uh, a lot of the types of credits that Kathy was talking about, whereas an individual, you can supply for those credits. And then there are grant opportunities like the ones that uh, for local governments and ports and the like that Anne was talking about. And it's kind of hard to think about like myself and how I'm going to benefit. I, I personally would like to be able to get um, a used EV at some point <laughs> in the future too. I think that's a really interesting uh, addition to the law. Um, and I'm excited about all the individual, uh, the personal credits, the heat pump opportunities um, and the like. But really what I think I'm the most excited about the IRA is just kind of this wholesale high-speed transition that the law seems to call for over the next 10 years. Energy policy evolves like over decades typically. Um, and then it lasts for decades. Uh, and here, like, you know, back in the 70s, we were building coal fired power plants left and right because we thought that that was the solution to cheap energy during the 70s energy crisis. And those, a lot of those coal plants are still around today. Um, and, you know, another generation has passed and now here we are with the IRA seeking another wholesale remake of the energy and transportation sector. And I can't believe I get to watch that happen during my lifetime. I just am fascinated by it. I think it's amazing. And the, the other thing I'll just say is I think the law was just so clever and creative in the way that it solved a bunch of problems all at once. The prior renewable energy policy kind of impetus was through uh, was through tax credits primarily. And the problem is, is what do you do when a lot of these companies and businesses don't have tax liability? Where is their incentive to deploy renewable energy? I mean, Kathy mentioned that with direct pay. Now there's direct pay for entities that don't pay federal tax for the most part, nonprofits, local governments. Um, and direct pay is exactly how it sounds. It's a check from the government. And if you are getting direct pay for like production tax credits, say Dane County, uh, builds a solar array, um, or not Dane County, but a local government somewhere, uh, they will get a check from the government every year for the value of those tax credits. It's, it's almost like a revenue stream that helps offset the cost of that project over time. Um, and that to me is just, that's that's really cool. But the other thing is for those for-profit entities that do are subject to federal tax and do pay taxes, if they don't have enough tax liability, to absorb all of the tax credits from their project, they now get to sell those to somebody who does have tax liability, which is really, I think, game-changing and exciting. It makes it more possible for rate-regulated utilities um, to build renewable energy projects, especially those utilities that don't necessarily have a lot of tax liability. It makes it possible for um, other entities to avoid having to find like really creative financing mechanisms like using tax equity and all other sorts of complex structures. They can just simply show the IRS that they built the project, it produced X amount or they spent X amount depending on which type of credit they applied for and boom, it should be, you should be done. And so like I said, like it just solved a whole bunch of problems all at once and I'm really excited to see how the transition goes. Thanks, Andrew. Kathy, what about you? What are you personally going to access from here? I'm very excited to hear your response, and I hope it includes heat pump. I'm taking it, notes. It's, yeah, it does include heat pump. So, so, so actually, like Anne, I drive an ID four. I think you know we're a happy one car EV family, um, but we we have a 15 year old solar system that we might be doing an upgrade to, and maybe it includes some battery storage. And I think, yeah, a, a heat pump is definitely in our future. This this sort of accelerates that conversation about how we start to transition away from natural gas in our house too. So yeah, it 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 is pretty amazing when you look at this, like just how much opportunity there is here. So I've promised listeners in the past that we would do an entire episode about heat pumps and we still haven't gotten there. Could you briefly tell us, Kathy, what a heat pump is and why you would want one? Yeah. So so one way to think about a heat pump is it's it's a two-way air conditioner. So it works both directions. It will it will take warm 
outside air and send it through a condenser and put cool air in your house, but it will also take cold outside air, send it through and put warm air in your house. And, you know, in many parts of the country, heat pumps are what people heat and cool with because the heat pumps that have, have long existed in the U.S. did a really good job heating down to maybe 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you lived in, I don't know, St. Louis, Missouri, a heat pump probably worked for you as your, your cooling. And, and heat pumps are incredibly efficient. So that cooling is way more efficient than, than an efficient air conditioner kind of thing. And the heating is, is quite efficient too. We've got now, and we'll connect you to some of these folks, Kristen, we're starting to have folks in our area who are doing conversions of their homes. So there, there is a growing group of what they call cold climate heat pumps, where the heat pump might work down to 15 below Fahrenheit and can be coupled with, with some supplementary heating strategies so that, that that's, you know, heating homes in our climate with no issues. I've got a couple of folks we're in touch with who are, you know, one of whom is in a hundred year old home that she did a bunch of insulation and then put in a heat pump and is completely delighted with it. You know, um, she also took out a gas stove in the kitchen and by the way, says she can tell when she walks into someone's house. Now, if they have a gas stove, she can like smell it in, in the doorway, you know, because there's a difference. So we've got, kind of a growing number of examples. We're seeing a lot of heat pumps in, in Dane County. And I know vendors are telling me in Milwaukee, in multifamily housing, it's a really good option. And there are clever ways that they're sometimes locating those heat pumps to maximize efficiency. So the challenge I think for us transitioning to heat pumps is partly psychological for since the 1980s, when Wisconsin started having energy efficiency programs, we told people, don't heat with electric resistance heat, heat with gas, it's more efficient. But heat pumps are yet more efficient than those gas appliances. And so we kind of have to bend our minds around a different way of doing this. I think that is the bigger challenge, not the technology at this point. The technology is largely here um, and there are an increasing number of good options. I'm starting to hear vendors advertise heat pumps in radio ads. So I'm encouraged that it's coming. Is there anything we should know or be preparing for as we talk about how states are going to implement these new programs? I think one of the things, Kristen, that that people need to recognize, and you know, and we've talked a little bit about the infrastructure bill as a complement to the Inflation Reduction Act. So the Inflation Reduction Act, more than two-thirds of the incentives are tax credits. Tax credits aren't formula allocations to states. There's not somebody locally who's responsible for getting people to do tax credits. Tax credits are going to flow in big ways because people knew about them and took advantage and vendors helped them, you know, and all of that. Or they're going to flow in little ways or even not at all because folks weren't aware of them and there was no local help. I can tell you, it, I mean, this is why we've got pages up on our website. We think the tax credits are an incredible assist from the federal government for our climate goals, and we want everyone to know about this. So we're thinking about this really in an organizing way. How do I, our office works with local local governments, but we also work with faith communities and, and corporate green teams. How do we feed that information to all of those folks to share in their networks so that people know about these opportunities kind of thing. How do we make it easy and reduce some of that friction to get there? Um, because otherwise, otherwise the tax credits are going to flow to the coasts where people are doing more of these things and there's more existing conversation and we're going to miss out. Well, we want to make sure that doesn't happen and appreciate your effort to help connect people with resources. Andrew, did you want to chime in? We're going to see probably in the next couple of years, a pretty significant influx of new renewable energy projects that are going to be under development and under construction it, it, all over the country, I would say, including within the interior of the country, like the Midwest. And one thing that energy companies, developers can do 
it, when they go in to apply for their local permits is as part of the process of applying for local permits is be almost like a technical advisor to that small local government about what is available to them under the IRA. I mean, who better than to advise these local governments than somebody who's already in the energy industry um, and already in the energy space? And they could, you know, all the way from let's just have a meeting and we'll lay it out for you to we'll dedicate a person to help you apply for grants um, and develop your own rooftop solar project on your municipal building that will comply with the IRA tax credits and get you direct pay for the next 10 years. Um, and I think, you know, like the energy industry itself can do a tremendous part to kind of not really proselytize, but just like get out there and help local governments leverage this stuff. And local governments really benefit from that. And then you've got, you know, a true partnership um, for renewable energy uh, deployment, especially in small rural communities where, you know, there may not be as much awareness of these sorts of resources that are going to be available. Um, and I think that would kind of boost implementation as well. So just as a matter of practice, I think it makes sense for developers and, and uh, energy companies to do that as part of their permitting efforts. Thanks, Andrew. Anne? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, they uh, both uh, Kathy and Andrew have uh, made really in, in, important uh, points around the education. And I, I think, yeah, they're um, absolutely right. We all have a role in getting the word out about these opportunities and, you know, particularly related to the electric vehicle tax credits. There is a lot of confusion around those. Um, so I won't say that everything is completely rosy um, because there are a lot of details related to the uh, minerals uh, components and the percentage that's going to be required. And so manufacturers are trying to figure that out. There's a whole, um, you know, th there'll be a whole lot of new stuff related to tracking along the supply chain for these resources. And so, you know, we are really looking um, to, you know, each of these players to um they're each going to have an important uh, part in this education and relaying information to the IRS to ensure effective implementation of the law. Um, and the IRS has already begun to put out some guidance. There will need to be uh, further guidance on it to, you know, ensure that the vehicles that fit the provisions that were outlined in the IRA, that they are, you know, matching these requirements. So there is a lot more education that's going to be needed. We need more guidance coming uh, from the IRS about some of these provisions. So, you know, I think in the near term, some of this is going to be delayed a little bit as we get further clarification. But I'm hoping once we get that um, and once the manufacturers and dealers understand their roles um, under this new law, that 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 money will begin uh, flowing and benefiting com consumers and businesses alike. I was just going to mention, too, that the IRS just recently issued a FAQ, a Frequently Asked Questions, about the Section 30 EV tax credits. And in that FAQ, I believe they listed the makes and models that will qualify for the EV tax credits uh, in 23, as well as kind of like an implementation for how um, some of the requirements of the tax credit are going to play out over the course of this next year. Um, and yeah. I was personally surprised by how many models were going to qualify. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. And I think that list is going to be really important. And one of the other steps will be the manufacturers making sure that they submit those requirements. And then in the case of some of these rebates, the the dealers are going to need to um, do some reporting as well. Um, so those are, you know, just some additional details that um, are going to need to be further worked out. Thank you. And maybe it should go without saying, but we will put that IRS FAQ in our show notes. All right. We are running up on an hour. So I'm going to ask you really quick, just a lightning round. What do you think, as we look back in five or 10 years, what do you think will be the most visible lasting impacts from the IRA? Andrew, I'm going to start with you. The EV charging station and the electric vehicle that you see on the road uh, and how many of them you start to see on the road. Uh, I think that those two, apart from probably the obvious as you drive through 
the Midwest, you'll see a lot more solar arrays and wind projects out there too. And those are going to be around for the next 30 to 40 years. Got it. Thanks, Andrew. And I'll just echo exactly what Andrew said. I think People are going to know where charging stations are. They're going to begin to see that signage along the highways. And I think, yeah, I think that's going to be the most visible uh, impact. Um, and also, hopefully, those emissions around our ports and distribution centers. I hope we're going to see a lot you know, cleaner air in those communities from uh, transitioning a lot of those uh, diesel engines to electric. Thanks, Anne. Kathy, we'll go to you. Yeah, and I think within five years, we're going to start seeing that the new normal is some of these things, that when when someone's replacing a roof, they're looking at solar integrated with that roof. When people are talking about HVAC systems or talking about heat pumps, you know, we're just, this is enough of a kind of integrated approach to this that within five years, the normal is going to have started to shift in substantial ways. I think so too. And I'll bring it back to where we started talking about school buses. I hope we see tons of electric school buses and fleet vehicles that are electric. I know I'm already seeing Amazon delivery trucks that are all electric. And I think it makes so much sense for fleets and school buses. And I'd love to see at some point those fleets becoming a grid asset uh, for storage. Okay, so our last question for all of our guests, if you had all the power in the industry, what would you do with it? And Andrew, I'm going to start with you. This is a big question. If I had all the power, I think the next step, and this is a little wonky, but we need to start talking about a nationwide integrated transmission system in the United States to support the deployment of large-scale renewable energy. Right now, it's really challenging to move electricity and power around the United States. There must be a better way. Um, our electric grids are fairly balkanized by region, and we need to figure out a way to kind of unify and solidify uh, a planning process uh, for transmission deployment and expansion uh, throughout the country to support this transition. That's really kind of one of the significant things that was left out of the IRA and isn't in there. Uh, and I think that that's next. That is the next climate effective uh, uh, piece of legislation. I think that's a great point to bring up, especially as we talk about electrifying everything. You want to make sure you can access that power, that it's clean and reliable as well. And we're moving the cheapest renewable power from where it's being produced to the places that need it the most, um, like Oklahoma to the Eastern Seaboard. And if we could figure out how to do that, and lots of people have tried in the past, if we can figure out how to do that, uh, I think that's big progress. Thanks, Andrew. And do you want to go next? Sure. <laughs> that Yeah, that is certainly uh, a, a big question. So I'll just add on, I guess, to, you know, other things that I've mentioned and uh, you just reference um, uh, more on, on school buses. But I want, you know, every kid that is riding in a school bus for it to be a clean school bus and uh, for those school districts to have the resources to be able to uh, deploy those and install the necessary charging uh, to support those, and it be bi-directional charging so that we can see those school buses serve as storage and as resiliency uh, tools um, you know, across our country. Um, I think everybody deserves a clean ride to school, and um, so that's that's one of the places I would I would focus as I have been working on for a while now. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Thank you so much for your work on that, Anne. All right, Kathy, we'll go to you next. Since Anne and Andrew kind of covered, I think, some of the technical places, I'm going to use my power in a slightly different way. I think part of our problem here is one of human imagination. We People are not very good at contemplating doing something in a different way than they've done it before. So I I want some kind of magical way to put people in in these alternative technologies so that that my cousin who thinks he would never drive a pickup truck that was electric 
for a week gets to drive a Rivian or a Ford F-150 Lightning. And I know he'll never go back because it's way more fun kind of thing. And similarly, that those kids get that school bus experience, that people experience the heat pumps because these are superior technologies, but we, we resist because it's not something we're familiar with. And so we need to create those and I think all of us who have access to these technologies need to think about how we give more people an experience with them so they go, oh, that's like really simple. You know, this is this is better. Why wouldn't I want this thing? So that we can increase the demand now that we've sort of got the tools to make it happen. Thank you, Kathy. You're always inspiring and I love I love hearing from you. So thank you for that. And thank you all for joining. This has been fun and educational and i appreciate you bringing your expertise absolutely thanks so thanks much thanks thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in please support our work you can subscribe to the electric wire podcast if you haven't already and you can follow us on twitter at the electric wire thanks also to the members of the customers first coalition for supporting this podcast our members are Dairyland Power Cooperative, Madison Gas and Electric, the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin, WPPI Energy, the Citizens Utility Board, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2150, and the Wisconsin Electric Cooperatives Association. Thanks again for listening. We'll have a new episode next month.